We're going to look at the next one in our Marks of Jesus series, Stills the Storm. As someone pointed out, when it went up on the, uh, uh, on the screen, it looked like John steals the storm. I'm not going to, only in the name of Jesus I might have a go, but I'm, I'm not the one who stilled the storm, Jesus. But you probably basically got that. But okay, it's me speaking about Jesus stilling the storm. And that's in Mark 4. So if you've got uh, Bibles or on your iPads or something. Mark 4, we're going to read together the story as it's written in Mark, starting at verse 35. And it's interesting that Mark, in fact, uh, probably it is Peter's account. It's, uh, Mark was writing down Peter's account. And a number of people say it has the ring of authenticity of Peter's sort of real experience, a bit of bluntness and truth about it. It's a little more direct than some of the other accounts, which would have been secondhand probably. And it has little details, like the, there are several other ships and the, the Jesus was asleep on a cushion, which would have been the sort of at the back of the boat. Just interesting little details, eyewitness details. So let's read it. <clears throat> Verse 35. <clears throat> that day when evening came, he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, don't you care if we drown?' He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the waves, "'Quiet, be still!' Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's a dramatic account of a real incident that occurred for the disciples quite early on in Jesus' public ministry. Uh, as we can see. So it's recorded early-ish in the Gospels. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about it, but I'm going to try and tie what I want to say to three questions that come up in this little passage. We're going to look, first of all, at the question that the disciples ask. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And that's the one we're going to put up now. That's the one we're going to look at in a moment. I don't want any others up at the moment, but there are two other questions we'll look at. Do you still have no faith? And then the last one is the disciples. Who is this? Okay, so we're going to start by looking at the disciples' question. And out of that, I want to dig in a little bit and talk about things to do with Jesus and how we relate to him. Because the disciples, in the middle of this storm, in the middle of the fear and the chaos of the storm, turn around and shout, I imagine, this is no whisper, angrily and passionately shaking Jesus, Teacher, don't you care? If we drown, don't you care? Now, most of us who are Christians, there's probably the majority in the room, have probably voiced or thought something not dissimilar to this at some point in our experience with God and with Jesus. We thought, does God care what's happening to me? He doesn't seem to be anywhere. He seems to be asleep. You know, where is Jesus when I need him? Where are you, Lord? I mean, that's the sort of gut call of these disciples. They sort of love and respect Jesus. 
They're going to learn more about him out of this incident. They're getting some of it. They will have seen the water turned into wine. They'll have seen demons cast out. They'd have seen quite a lot already. But actually, at this point, they just go into normal human panic mode. And they say, where are you, Jesus? What are you doing asleep? Now, this was clearly something that we can associate with. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's make sure that we've got that this was a real, real crisis. It's called a furious squall. And it obviously was serious because of the way the disciples react. At least four of the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James and John, are or were, up until very recently, fishermen. Experienced fishermen. They were part of a family business. Their dad's name was Zebedee, two of them, James and John. They were a family business fishing on this lake of Galilee. So they knew all about Galilee and they knew all about its storms. All the other disciples would have lived in that area and been fairly familiar. Now apparently... Storms blow up frequently in Ga- on the Lake of Galilee because it's very low. It's below, I think it's slightly below sea level. I don't know all the details of the geography, but it's quite low and it has high hills and there's a quick change of air and w- winds rush down and squalls are quite frequent. So they know what a storm does. They must have handled dozens of storms. They may even have been almost daily event to in the evening as the temperature changed to have some sort of storm. So they are not unfamiliar with storms, but they are very fearful. Someone has said it's usually the experts who recognize the need to panic. It's usually the experts that recognize the need to panic. These experts said it's time to panic. So Peter and the other fishermen were not just like you and I, who might not be very familiar with sailing, a bit nervous if it's a bit too rocky. These guys knew what they were doing, and they said, this is a crisis. This is serious. This is very bad. Now, we could take too long on this, but there is a hint in the passage that there was a demonic force behind the storm. The hint is in the way Jesus deals with it, which is very similar language to the language he uses in delivering people from demons. And and there is a sense that there was a huge fear factor in the disciples' hearts. Again, remember they're experienced, well, four of them are experienced fishermen. They're probably all fairly experienced about going on boats on Galilee. And there is a panic in them. And I think when you get a demonic attack, you can get a natural thing and you can get a a demonic fear a spirit of fear that just panics you, and this is not an unknown thing. Sometimes you think, like, it's really, it's serious, but it's freezing me. I'm just terrified by this. That's what was happening. They weren't only frightened. They seem, as we often are when we're frightened, we get angry. They seem sort of angry with Jesus. The way they wake him up in verse 38 is pretty rude. Don't you care that we drown. It's a slightly exaggerated. They're not actually drowning yet. And it has all the signs of fear and anger. Maybe they were angry because they're only in this position because they obeyed Jesus, which is true. It's the end of a long, tiring day. And uh, Jesus said, I want to sail over to the other side. Maybe they thought, oh, great. We don't particularly want to do that. It's late in the day. And maybe they even knew the weather can change. But they did it. They obeyed Jesus, and now what a mess they're in. That's not unknown to us. (laughs) It's obeying Jesus seems to have made the situation worse. I seem to have gotten a mess out of that. Maybe there was a little bit of a personal edge to some of the disciples' anger and fear and irritation because Jesus was a carpenter, actually. 
He really was. He was a carpenter who made things out of wood with his dad, Joseph. And he was a teacher, but he wasn't a fisherman. And maybe they thought, he just doesn't get what this is about. He doesn't understand. This is serious. This is something he needs to give attention to. Whatever it was, they woke him up. And actually, it's not difficult for us to sympathize with them as we're doing. Because if you take the boat as a metaphor or a picture of our lives or our church, we often seem to sail into storms. Perhaps when we even think we're following God, and we are following God, and it seems to lead us into a storm. There's turbulence, there's uncertainty, and maybe there's even a demonic fear that just freezes us. And we think, what is going on? It can happen at all sorts of levels for our lives. And a terrifying storm of circumstances, maybe emotional, maybe physical, maybe to do with uh, family, work, it could be anything. Uh, It's not hard to find a parallel to these situations. And like the disciples, maybe at first we try and cope tough it out, which I guess they've done. Jesus is asleep. They don't wake him instantly. I think they keep rowing or whatever they were doing, rowing, I guess. But it just seemed to get worse and worse. It seemed like the boat was being swamped by the waves. And now they really do want to shake him and wake him up, which is what they do. Don't you care that we drown? If we draw the parallel with ourselves and our Christian walk and our lives being like the little boat, then I think there's quite a few lessons, just quickly, headline lessons to learn from this story. First one, which I've already touched on really, is being a storm, being in a storm doesn't mean you're out of the will of God. They were actually in the will of God, they were obeying Jesus, and they got into a storm. And it's quite natural to think when something goes wrong in your life, when something goes wrong in any dimension, as I say, emotionally, socially, physically, whatever it is, to assume, am I being punished for going wrong? Where have I gone wrong? They hadn't gone wrong. They sailed into a storm when they were in the will of God. That is sobering, but it's sort of encouraging too. Don't let's automatically assume storm means I've missed it, I've blown it. That That wasn't true. They were in the will of God, obeying Jesus. They hit a storm. But another side to that means that sometimes even obeying Jesus takes us into a storm. In fact, sometimes it's our Christian life and our Christian witness or statement or behavior or things we won't do or will do because we're Christians that can create some form of storm. That, that's true. And we have to accept that sometimes. You have to get the fact that it may be difficult being a Christian. It can be a troubling thing at times. Not necessarily in yourself always, but in the circumstances. And that can disturb you internally as well. Let's take a third thing. Being in the storm did not mean that Jesus wasn't with them. He was still there. He was asleep, but he was still there. And I want to say to you, every one of you who follow Jesus, like we do, I do, Jesus has promised never to leave you or forsake you. Amen? Never. He's promised. And actually, even if he seems asleep, he's not disappeared and left you. You are not on your own. He was there in the boat all the time. And he is with you even when you're in a storm. And perhaps another point slightly similar but worth, I think, highlighting is that our circumstances, what's happening to us, are not a good yardstick for judging 
God's love for us. It's easy to do that. It's easy to think, well, if things aren't going well for me, then he can't love me. Here's a a comment by an old uh, writer, Victorian writer called J.C. Ryle. He was a bishop, actually, and I love some of his writings. This is one little sentence. We must not rush to judge... Excuse me, I'll start again. We must not rush to judge Jesus' care for us by the roughness of the seas over which we sail. Don't rush to judge Jesus' care of you by the roughness of the sea. If you are that vulnerable, Satan can always stir up a wind to get you shaking and doubting Jesus. Don't doubt Jesus' love just because you've sailed into a storm. Here's another lesson, and actually it's a positive one from the disciples. At least they knew where to go when they were in trouble. They woke Jesus up. Really, they prayed. You could say it was a sort of prayer. It was a blunt prayer, but it was an honest prayer. It was real. They were scared rigid. They felt in danger. They said, Jesus, look, something, help, something serious is going on. It probably shouted, as I say, in in a sort of panic, but it's real. And I want you to notice that Jesus did wake up and he did respond. And although they may not be the best example of faith, and we'll talk about that in a moment, they are an example of where to go when you're in trouble. Amen? You know, and God doesn't mind if it's not as polite as it should be. When you're desperate and fearful, where else do you go? You need to get to Jesus and wake him up. He's not asleep, of course, but he was here physically. Wake him up, and he responds, and he he does begin to deal with the storm. Finally, they learnt quite a lot out of this storm. It's recorded in, in three of the Gospels, not John, but the three uh, synoptic Gospels. And obviously it was a vivid experience. And here's a bottom line lesson. You learn a lot more in storms than you do on a calm day. You do. It's just how it is. I don't like that myself, but I know it's true that you learn a lot more in storms than you do on a calm day. And sometimes that is one of the big things that happens through a stormy time in your life, that you will learn quite a lot. It may be, first of all, you'll learn your own limitations, which is exactly what happened to disciples. You learn your lack of faith or your weakness or your need to grow in some form of character, godly character that you thought you'd grown in. But you can also learn your total dependence on God, his power, his grace, his reliability, And there was something awesome they learned about Jesus that day as well. So they woke him up, and they probably didn't expect what happened. They possibly expected something like, oh, oh, sorry, I was so tired. Oh, it's been such a long day. Wow, wow, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay, let's see what we can do about this storm. I don't know if he talks about that. That sort of thing. But they didn't get that. What happened was an instant, almost, flash of godlike authority, which was awesome. Quiet, be still. That was awesome. Come on, nobody stills the wind and the waves. You might, you might hear, you know, this is another dimension in some ways. Things that even today, modern man would struggle to control, the wind and the waves, in this way. Jesus immediately brings peace and calm. That was awesome. But it was quickly followed by a rebuke. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I was the disciples, I might have found that a little harsh. I I, I might have gone, hang on a minute, a bit more sympathy would be nice. 
Maybe an apology for the delay would be quite pleasant. I mean, come on a bit, Norman. What, you know, it's not unreasonable. We do know about storms, blue, whatever. But they didn't. I think they were held silent by what happened. But also, let's remember ourselves, this is not Jesus' way. Jesus is God. And God is good, but he's not safe, as Mrs. Beaver says in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. We're dealing with God here. He doesn't come just to cheer us up and pat us on the back. He is full of compassion and love, but we must be careful not to bring our terminology even right down to lose something of the edge that God has. And I just feel sometimes we have to be a little careful, all of us, in modern life and, our, and the way we do things, the way God does things. It's wonderful what God's doing. And I, some people I respect and love uh, use terminology. I've heard it several times from people I love and learn from, both in this country and overseas. God's in a good mood and things like that. Look, just be careful. We're not making him sound like he's some Father Christmas or some benign old man. God is God. And Jesus is compassionate, he's loving, he protects them, but he ain't comfortable. He goes, he doesn't even put an apology in first. He doesn't need to make an apology. He goes straight to the heart of it. Why are you consumed with fear? Do you have no faith? Now, the three different records of the, of the Gospels carry uh, different things. I, I, I mustn't get into that too much, but they all have the gist of where is your faith? And it's a challenge to the disciples. He doesn't do things our way. He doesn't always see our career as more important than our character. He'd actually put it the other way around. I think your character is more important than your career. And so on. He doesn't always work towards what we would feel the most comfortable and easy way to do things. But he does suffer with us and work with us. Jesus is there in the storm with them. And he works through that to bring hope and help. So let's go on to the second question, one of the ones Jesus asked them. Do you still have no faith? Now, why is Jesus so cross with the disciples? Well, because faith is really, really important. It is a vital issue, and I've got to be very disciplined here, and I'm not the best at this, because I'd want to speak a lot on this. But fortunately, I have hope. In two weeks' time, I'm speaking again on the next one I'm doing, and uh, the theme is faith. And so I will be able to say a bit more there. I'm still going to say a bit this morning, because actually faith is a huge issue with the disciples and with Jesus in when he deals with people. As I said, if you looked at the three accounts, they do vary a little bit, which is a wonderful example of how the Gospels were written. If they were all exactly word for word the same, it would be very boring and unnecessary. They are eyewitness accounts. They are real. They're authentic. They're what people remembered and said. This was Peter telling Mark, and he says, Jesus said, why have you no faith? But if you get Luke's account, which wouldn't have been direct, Luke wasn't there. It would have probably been from other disciples. There are some hints that he spoke a lot to Mary by the way the Christmas story comes, but we don't know. But he clearly says he gathered together stories. And his is, the memory he's given, is that Jesus said, where is your faith? So maybe it was like they were behaving as though there was no faith. And Jesus said, where's your faith gone? Why aren't you using your faith? Where's your faith? 
So there's a sense that this is uh, a rebuke, but it, you know, we're not dealing with a precise uh, legalistic term. There was a gut reaction from Jesus to the gut reaction, if you like, of the disciples. is Why are you consumed with fear? Where's your faith? Jesus loved people to show faith in him. They loved, he loved it when they responded positively to what he said and who he was, which is the problem here. He'd said, go over to the other side. If they realized who he was, they were going to get to the other side. Also, they're beginning to hear about it, see who he is, you know, the water into wine, things I've said. And actually, they seem to have forgotten everything. That's what Jesus' concern is. And so when Jesus sees faith, he always commends it. We'll see that in the next uh, talk in a couple of weeks. And when he feels there's no faith, he's, he's often is quite cross and short. Um, and, and it seems to almost limit him. There's that famous time when he goes to Nazareth, and they, they're too familiar. There was the carpenter's son, and he couldn't do many mighty works there. So faith is clearly very important. And actually, quite interestingly, and this illustrates, is illustrated in this story, fear and faith are very important to understand. They almost seem to be very similar and occupy a similar space in the human psyche. I don't even know how to put it. That if you're full of fear, it's very difficult to be full of faith. But when you're full of faith, fear gets put in its place and pushed out. And so there's a fear-faith battle going on, which the devil knows well about, by the way, and loves to sow fear and loves to create fear because he knows where fear is reigning, faith will be struggling. But actually, Jesus is saying, What's it? why are you so full of fear? It's faith you need. Where, where, where the faith tank's empty? And so actually, we have to learn this is reality for the Christian life. This is a reality. If you want to be a, an effective Christian, I speak as someone who's lived with that battle 40, 50 years in my life. Not because I'm weird, it's how Christian life is. Perhaps I am weird, but that's not the point. Uh, you actually live with a battle often between fear and faith in all sorts of ways. As I say, the devil is fully aware of what it is, and, and God's constantly calling you back, come on, trust me, believe me, be in faith. Well, they got consumed with fear, and then their faith had evaporated. And Jesus rebukes them, pulls them back. Now we need to quickly, and it is quick, but I, I won't be able to deal with everything next time. I want to quickly highlight, particularly if you're just looking in at Christianity, very quickly, some verses that tell you how fundamentally important faith is. Here's one, Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You can't get anywhere with God if you're not prepared to exercise faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is a non-negotiable fact that the Christian life is a life of faith. Coming to know Jesus is a step of faith. And actually, faith is like breathing for physical life. You can't say, well, can I be alive and not breathe? No, no. Can I, can I you know, you walk by faith. Now, our faith can waver and struggle, our disciples did, but, but faith is fundamental. It's worth giving attention to faith. Let's do it quickly. Let's look at a few more verses. A few more from Hebrews, please. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. 
Here's the point. Faith does ne- never gets its certainty from the physical realm of our senses and emotions. We are really, really ruled by the physical realm of what we feel, what's happening to us, and our emotions. That is not where faith is grounded. You know, faith comes before feelings. Feelings have to line up behind faith often. And we have to be very careful that we don't become totally dictated to by how we feel about anything. Faith is a confidence in something we don't see or don't yet perhaps experience. People often say, well, if only God would show himself, then I'd believe in him. Well, it wouldn't be faith anymore. That's one point. The second point is that you probably wouldn't believe it. Because you, if something weird happened to you and you'd say, oh, that was an angel or that was an extraterrestrial or somebody put some drugs in my cup of tea or my drink or spiked my drink, you know, if you, you, you still talk it away. That's just the reality. You can't avoid a faith element. A faith element is saying, I believe what God says before I see it and I step out on it. Now, I believe there's plenty of evidence for God, but you're not going to get proof solid proof, and then say, then I'll put faith, then I'll believe. Well, it's no longer believing. Faith is certain of something you don't see, and believes in it and trusts in it. Let's look on another one quickly. There's a few of these. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me, says Jesus in John 6, verse 45. What's the lesson here? You can do something about faith. Faith comes by accepting what God says. Faith comes by hearing the word. Or listening to the Father, learning from him, faith will come. Similar idea, I would argue. You can then do something about faith, which is what? Feed on God's word. Listen to the word. Hear it. Listen to the Father. Let its word, the word, penetrate into your mind and your heart. And the word of God tells us, faith comes. Wow. So faith is not something you work out psychologically. It is not screwing yourself up. I'm really going to believe this. I really believe it. The world understands that faith is a powerful thing and it's often applied in a totally non-spiritual sense that people try and find ways of psyching themselves up, find ways of getting real confidence even against the odds and there's a bit of reality to that. I'm not actually saying that's rubbish, there's not. But we're talking about something that's way beyond that. We're talking about something where you hear God's word, listen to the Father and faith comes. I've experienced it. I just know that's true. I haven't persuaded, I haven't brainwashed myself. I just, it, it's like a light. It's like light in the dark. See, I know that. I can remember the first time I got the reality of who I am in Christ from Romans 6. Reading God's Word. Thinking, oh, that, that is what it is to be. I believe that. I'm a Christian. I was already a Christian. And it, it altered my walk with God. I can remember it on other things. Holy Spirit, we won't, can't list them all. But I know that's how it works. Faith comes as you hear the word of God. So whoever you are, whatever level, experienced Christian or not yet Christian, be open to the word. Listen, and faith will come. 
quickly. We are saved by faith. There's a bit longer quote. It's just true though. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus, in him, is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. They're already, we're already under condemnation. The way out of condemnation and judgment is to put your faith in Jesus. Amen? It's faith, and yet we are saved by faith. You are not saved by your works. There's nothing you can do that will save you. What will save you, you're already condemned. It's like you've already done, you're already under condemnation. The judge has made his judgment. It's no good saying, well, I'll be better now. I'll try harder. No, no, you've got to deal with what's already done. And there is some way of dealing, dealing with it. Jesus has died for you. Jesus bore your condemnation when he died on the cross. He's, with his stripes, you are healed. He bore your sins. He bore your failures and weaknesses. And now you can believe that's true. You can thank him. You can commit yourself to it and confess it, which is saying, I believe it and I'm committed to it. And that will save you. You are saved by faith. And here's the last one quickly on faith before we move to the last question. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love this verse. You see, sometimes we have a caricature that faith is hard work. Faith is screwing yourself up and trying to believe it. it you, have, you, you know, you look as though you've uh, got a tense face to be in faith, or maybe you have a sour expression. I don't know. There's all these weird caricatures. Faith brings joy. That's the truth. You get joy and peace when you trust in him. So there can be a radiance and a joy even in a storm. Instead of looking terrified, there can be a peace. Why? Because you trust in him. So faith brings joy and peace. It is not something horrible and it releases hope. There's an overflow. I mean, they link together really, faith and hope. And, and the Holy Spirit comes in on what you believe, and there's an overflowing of righteousness, peace, joy, and hope that comes when you put faith in Jesus. It's glorious. It's glorious. So as we finish, last five to ten minutes, finish about 25-2 if we need to warn the children. As, as we finish, I want to look at the last question. The disciples end up saying, who is this? Now they ask the question because they are just overawed by what happens. There is this flash of godlike authority, and then there is this authoritative rebuke, which is almost like not in the context of their human tussling with fear, and how do you bail the boat out and get enough water out so it doesn't sink, and all the stuff they'd have been bothered with, and suddenly there's just like a totally different agenda. It's like, this is about faith. <laughs> it's about faith? I thought it was about drowning. No, it's about faith. And, and so, so what what is, what is that all about? Who is this? Well, let me say to you, every one of you in the room, including me, I'm saying it to myself, it is vitally important you believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Do you agree? Yes. If you're not yet a Christian, that's what you need to do to become one, really. But if you are a Christian, we need to live with the reality of who 
Jesus is. Whoa. Jesus is wonderful. He is all that he said he is. He is the Son of God. He was truly man, truly God. He is our Redeemer, our friend, our Savior, our Lord, the Prince of Peace. Actually, this week and last week in our worship, we, we drew attention to names of Jesus. These things are vital to get hold of. It was in the worship this morning. Because we need to believe he is who he said he is. You see, Christianity is all about Jesus Christ as a person. It's not just about his teaching. It's not just a philosophy that Jesus gave us. This I know, many of you know well, but let's remind ourselves because it's, it, it blesses us and builds our faith. Actually, all the major religions, you could do this. Muhammad, um, Buddha, Confucius. You could take out the key teacher and provided the teaching was the same, the system would carry on quite effectively. Remove Muhammad or Confucius or Buddha, and if you kept the teaching, the, the main points would continue, the main essence of the religion would continue. But if you remove Jesus from Christianity, the whole thing collapses. Now, actually, historically, and even today, many who call themselves Christians don't always behave like that, and it confuses people. Because they say Jesus is just another teacher and wonderful things and everything else. It's not what Christianity is about. It's about Jesus being the answer. Look at my last verse. Let's put it up. John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's outrageous. I am the way, the truth, and life. I don't tell you the way. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was not just a great teacher. He was not another religious figure. You know, it could be Confucius, Muhammad, it could be Buddha. No, he, it isn't. He's, you come to the Father through him. Not he just, I've told you the way to get to God. No, no, I am the way to get to God. And if you don't believe that, you, you won't get to God. He is the way. Jesus is absolutely fundamental. Christianity is about what Jesus has done for you, not what you do for him. Just get that. Brothers and sisters, just enjoy that. I know you've heard it a thousand times. Well, get it again. Christianity is about what Jesus has done for you, not what you can do for him. Isn't that great? Doesn't that already feel better? That's why there's joy and peace in believing. That's why there's joy and peace in believing. Because do you believe in me? Jesus said some odd things and lots of people weren't understanding them, didn't know them, didn't understand them. And even the disciples were pretty confused. You can find one example in John 8. And a lot of people began to go away and not follow Jesus. And Jesus said to his disciples, are you also going to go away? And they said, well, no. Where else do we go for the words of life and things like that? And he, he commends them. He said, because you believe what I say. Not because you understand it, but because you believed it. <laughs> they didn't yet really understand it. I don't know if we ever do understand some of it. But do you believe who he is? That he is this wonderful son of God. Right from the start, there's a mysterious mix to Jesus. Read again your Christmas story. Read it again. I know it's June. Read it. Read the early chapters of Luke and Matthew. 
you know, the, the whole experience of Mary, the virgin birth, and yet the ordinariness escaping to Egypt. The carpenter who, 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 who turns water into wine. Mary's son. There's always this mysterious mix. He's a very ordinary man. It's in this story. He's asleep because he's tired. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He weeps. Later, he bleeds. He dies. There's a real humanity. But there is also something else about him. You wake him up, and he stills the storm. That's the voice of God. As I said earlier, People, even today, would struggle. How do we control the wind and the waves? We can use their power to generate electricity, but we can't control them. The Creator can control them. And this was the voice of the Creator, a flash of it, and controlled them. And if there was a demon, he can control him as well. If it was demonically driven, he saw that and he dealt with it. There is often this tension in Jesus wonderful teaching, humble, gracious. Children came to him. They felt safe with him. Women felt respected. They felt safe with Jesus. You just look at the Gospels, read them again. Even Christians, read them again. See what a beautiful character. All the people who, and yet, and yet somehow he would do extraordinary miracles. Extraordinary miracles. But he didn't do miracles that like, were obviously like he didn't blast the Roman army or, or glorify himself. He didn't, he didn't do anything like that. They were miracles that served people, miracles that blessed the poor, healed the sick, miracles that fed the hungry. Sometimes he didn't particularly want people to know. Yet sometimes he spoke with the authority of God. Truly, I say to you. And he used the words that God uses for himself, the I am. He uses that title. When the Pharisees accused him of blasphemy, they knew what they were doing. Yet there was some grounds for what they were saying if he wasn't speaking the truth. Jim reminded us two weeks ago, was it? He said he forgave sins. Well, it's one thing to forgive people who sin against you. That's, that's good. But what about forgiving everybody else's sins? On what basis? Who can do that? God. On what basis do you do that? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What? C.S. Lewis and a thousand others have said, in the end, you have a choice. Jesus is either Bad, mad, or God. Honestly, you only have that choice unless you put your head in the sand and are in cuckoo land. You read it through, what he said, we looked at some of them today. Now, either this is someone who is evil and deceptive and a megalomaniac, or it's someone who genuinely thought he was God when he wasn't, and so is deeply deluded and mentally ill, or... He was who he said he was. And all his teaching, which is recognized as being amazing, lots of non-Christians would acknowledge the incredible balance and wonder of his teaching, all his character, which again, many non-believers would say was superb and wonderful. His enemies can find no fault with him. His friends described him as being without sin. All of that and the acts he did, which were, as I said, not proud acts of power. They were humble and blessing and feeding and helping people. All of that suggests he was not evil and he was not unbalanced. Do you agree? So he must have been who he said he was. He is our Savior and Lord. He's God become man. Truly man, truly God. And in that way, as that person, he was the only one who could die for your sin and my sin. 
for all Adam's blighted race, of which I am a member. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. The second man who took away everything that was lost and destroyed by the first man and all the consequences for the rest of us, men and women down through the centuries. And he brought in a new creation, a new start, a new hope for all of us if we will put faith in him and believe in him. And suddenly the Holy Spirit can be released to come in and change us because we're cleaned up, we're a new vessel, and we have new hearts. And the whole work of the gospel comes through because of Jesus and who he is. So the Apostle Paul writing in Galatians 2.20 talks about the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love that verse. In the end, who is Jesus to you? That's what matters. Not who is he theoretically or philosophically. Who is he to you? Is he the son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? I hope he is. He is for me. I can say with Paul, Jesus Christ is the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you can do that, you know him and you're saved and with him. You see, it really is about a personal relationship. I'm going to end with an illustration I read recently in a book. And it was by a missionary. I thought it was a very helpful illustration. Just listen carefully. Some missionaries, it's a real story. Some missionaries were traveling in the Amazon jungle. I think it was way back, halfway through the 20th century. It's not that far back. They were traveling through the Amazon jungle. They had a map, they had compasses, they had coordinates but they had got lost. They came to a native village and they asked the natives, the Indians there, for directions to get to the place they were trying to get to. The villagers knew exactly where they wanted to go. They knew how to get there. And one of the village elders, senior men of the village, offered to take the missionaries to the place they wanted to go. The missionary's immediate reaction was, no, that's okay. I think they're American-based. That's okay. We don't need a guide. Just give us the directions. Give us some landmarks. We have a map, and we have some compasses, and we can get back on course. The village elder said, with blank expression, looking at the paper, I, I don't know what you want. That's no good. I must take you there. So the missionaries argued a bit longer. No, no, we've got a map. We've got a compass. If you give us a bit of help about the direction, how we can relate it to our map. And he said, it, it will not work that way. It will not work that way. I cannot get you there. Oh, sorry, I, I can only get you there. I, I'm not saying very well. I can get you there, but I must take you myself. You will have to follow me. So in the end, they put their maps, their compasses, their coordinates in their bag and forgot about them and had to trust this man who might have been leading them into a, uh, an ambush, mightn't he? Or might not have known what he was doing. They had to trust him to guide them through this impenetrable jungle and he took him exactly where they wanted to go. But he couldn't and wouldn't get involved in the maps and the compasses. He said, you have to follow me and I will take you where you want to go. I think that is an incredibly helpful picture for all of us, especially if you're contemplating being a Christian or even us as Christians. 
In our 21st century minds, Western minds, we like directions, we like steps to follow, we like principles, we like maps and coordinates. But actually, life doesn't work like that and the Christian life doesn't really work like that. We like it because we still control it. We're still in control of the map. We still can decide what we do. But if I have a guide who I have to follow, I am no longer in control. I have to put aside all my paraphernalia. I've just got to trust and follow. And God is into guides, not maps. You don't need a better map. You need a good guide. And God won't give you a better map. If you're thinking about being Christian, I'd really just like a bit more. No, no, God will say, you've got to follow me and trust me. Jesus said, follow me. And actually, he's teaching the disciples, this is how we do life. You trust me, you put faith in me, what I call you to, and we live and sail along together. And when we had a storm, it's all about me being with you. And actually, for all of us, this is a very helpful reminder as we finish, that our Christian life is not really about maps and principles and coordinates and compasses. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we follow him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. I've run over a bit as ever. Let's stand together. Let's just stand quietly. We haven't got time for a, a finishing song, but let... We have got time for the Holy Spirit just to settle some stuff in our hearts. Let's just be quiet before him. I think this is a good moment to review. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to be honest with yourself. Have you been a bit cross with him almost, say he doesn't care, he doesn't understand. I want you to take a moment now to repent of that. You say, oh, but John, don't do any butting, or if you do, you'll have to go and do more work on your own, because in the end, you need to say, I'm sorry, Lord, for, for my lack of faith and for my mistrust of you. That is the good place to start. And I think for some of us, we might just need to refresh that. Maybe we'll have a moment in a minute when we will all pray. So for some of you, that might be the prayer. For others of you, you're sort of not proud about things or anything, but you have been struggling, the storm. You want to know what to do. Well, I think you can take encouragement from the disciples. You need to call out, Jesus, please help. Now, you say, some of you may say, well, I've already done that. That's for you to work out between God, whether you're the first category or the second category of what I've said. But there's a third category that may be here, and you may never have known Jesus. Maybe you've never trusted in him. Well, this morning, I want you to think, who is Jesus to me? Is he all he said he was? Or do I just think he was a good man or a bad man or whatever you think? I tell you he existed. There's no question about his existence, by the way, just in case someone's thinking like that. No modern um, academic would argue. No serious academic. He existed. And there's a lot of authenticity about the Gospels. But what do you believe about him?
Now let's pause for a moment. We're just going to quietly pray. Some of us, I hope it'll be just saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you still. You're my guide. And I want you to say that. For some of us, it might be a bit of repentance. Some of us, it's, God, please, I just need your help in the storm. We might want to just uh, take a moment. Let's meet, let, I'll go quiet for a minute, and then I'll pray for you. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for ever saving us. Thank you that you're our guide. You're our friend. You're our Lord, our Saviour. Lord, I pray you'll speak to each one here this morning. Lord, you know the need of every heart. If there's those who need to get their relationship right with you, help them to do it. Those who never know you, open their eyes, Lord, this morning. Those who... Lord, just going through a storm, Lord, come and comfort and give direction and help. Lord, may you even intervene and still the ferocity of the devil's storm. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. And I pray, Lord, for, for those of us who maybe got a bit over-familiar or weary, Lord, help us to refresh our faith this morning and to say, Lord, you're our guide. We will follow you. We don't need a map. We don't need to know every stage. We don't need to understand every twist and turn. We just want to follow you. We want to follow you.